0: Welcome to a Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to Redemption'sHill.com. All right, we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 7. Pretty good sized text to uh, read this morning, 11 through 25. Will you stand with me while we read this? Can we do that? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeni- likeliness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal re- requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That that wording is going to come up more than once, we draw near. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priestlyhood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the word of the Lord, friends. You can be seated. There's a saying that originated with Benjamin Franklin long ago, and and it was this, in this world nothing is certain except... There we go. That was the interactive part. Uh, He coined that term after making a statement about the new uh, constitution. Uh, And what he was doing is he he was trying to say, hey, the new constitution, it it was young at that, that time. There wasn't much time behind it. And he was saying, it seems promising, but even with all of that promise that it showed, there's not much that you can truly rely on except death and taxes. Uh, Those are the only givens, the only things that you can take to the bank, the only things that you can count on uh, forever. And that little idiom has been recrafted and reused and probably misused countless times over the years. But the intent has always kind of been the same with it, and it's to realize the certainty uh, of uncertainty for us. Uh, It is to comment on how few things are truly forever things that will last and and hold out through time. This world and most things in it are transient and temporary. Uh, To that, it's kind of interesting that that we get caught up in the boredom of a ritual that we're in at the moment, not really realizing that it is going to pass us by. Uh, My sons often say, I don't want to go to school today. Why? Because it's boring okay, works better, bud, but it's boring. I, I, I just don't want to, not realizing that before they know it, they're going to graduate and they're going to have to get a job and they're going to have to hold down that job and they're going to have to pay bills and do all of this other stuff. And this season that looks like it's taking forever, someday they're going to look back and yearn for that moment when they didn't actually have any real responsibility. Uh, maybe you're in a phase of life with your job right now where you're kind of in zoned out autopilot, I hate my job type of situation where you go and, and you do everything you can just to make the time pass by while you're, while you're there. You're kind of physically present to the, to the level that you have to be, but mentally and emotionally you are a million miles away just trying to get by because you can't stand the job, not realizing that one day you're going to retire and not work, and someday if the Lord tarries, nobody's going to want to pay you to do any work. You're probably going to be a little too feeble and too slow to get dark there. And you're going to look back at those moments where you worked and you thought you were bored and things were terrible, and you're going to wish that you could go back to those. A man once said, everything in the world that we trust is either partial or periodic. Periodic. Partial or periodic, everything that we put some sort of confidence in or reliance in, it will all fail. Everything we lean into will give out under the the weight of our hopes that we put on them. Be it a friendship or a formula or a way that you try and live your life, all things will be partial and periodic for you. If you lean too hard on a friend, right? there's going to be a day where that person isn't there the way that you expected them to be, and you're going to find out Right? And it's not even that that person was probably a, a, a bad person. They're just human, just like you, and all that hope that you put in them, it's going to kind of falter. If you lean into a formula or a strategy or way of life, you're going to find a time, you're going to run into a day where that formula is is inadequate to either answer the questions that you have, uh, soothe your conscience, or get you past some sort of hurdle. At some point, it's, it's not going to fill the gap. Everything ultimately fails. Everyone ultimately falters. And I'm not trying to be a cynic. This is not that I knew he'd get depressed after 40 type of sermon. I didn't have a bad year or a bad week when I was sermon prepping or anything like that. These things, they're all true. We hide from them. We like like to like not talk about them because they make us feel weird, but they're all true things. But here's the beauty of all of this. Even if it feels heavy or maybe over the top or kind of overwhelming, those truths, when you look at them in the eyes, make Hebrews 7 beautiful to us. Right? Everything changes and breaks and is partial. And Hebrews 7 is a beak of, beacon of light into the darkness for us because it screams to our hearts Jesus is the anchor that will be constant in a world that breaks and fades and falters all the time. He's the only thing that will last. He will last. He is not partial, He's not periodic. He'll not wear out. He will not break down. He will not lose interest in you. He will not fail you. He will not disown you. He will not change his mind about you. And he will not need a break from you because you're awful sometimes. None of those things will happen. He is constant to the uttermost and always. Those were the words that we saw in verse 25. Remember the context for this text. Early Christians, probably in the church of Rome, ones with a Jewish heritage who previously observed the old covenant, meaning they leaned into priests and the sacrificial system and the Levitical law uh, for their faith to deal with the problem of their sin. They have converted to Christianity, meaning now they're believing in Jesus to deal with the problem of their sin. But this new faith and belief in Jesus is causing them pressure and it's causing difficulty. They're looking over their shoulders wondering if they should run towards uh, the door wondering if the old ways the old covenant would be easier or more desirable would life just be easier that way In Rome, there was a somewhat peaceful disposition towards uh, the Jews at that time, and they figured maybe life under that protection may be easier and preferable to the life under following Jesus that was causing them some weirdness out in the world. The author's been working hard in chapter 6 and chapter 7 that we're almost done with today to show those believers that there is no path backwards for them. There's nowhere that they can retreat to because Jesus is the better high priest. He was the point all along. In last week's sermon, the, text, uh, the author used uh, Melchizedek in the text to prove all of this, showing that Melchizedek came from a different superior line of priests and saying Jesus came from this better superior line of high priests himself. This week's text continues to kind of press that same uh, element of superiority of Jesus, but we need to qualify a little bit of this to to make it make sense or be clarified. Jesus isn't superior to the Old Covenant priests in the same way that an In-N-Out burger is superior to a McDonald's burger. Jesus is not superior uh, to the Old Covenant priests in the same way that iPhone is clearly superior to Android right? Are are you following what I'm saying? Those versions of superiority, they lean into what we'll call degrees of of superiority or actual just kind of mere preference. Though In-N-Out Burger has a great burger, McDonald's still has an option. We can debate if it's a good option, but it has a viable option. And though I like my iPhone, Android phones work just fine, Right? The degree of superiority still leaves other options as viable. You can do that, and it'll still work out for you. The author is saying Jesus isn't just the best option to choose, though. He's not a degree better than the other things. Jesus is the only option for you and I for representation of us before God the Father. There is no other kind of lesser representative for us that will do. He is the only one. While our modern context leans into priests uh, less than the original audience did, it isn't in our everyday language the the way it would have been for them. The concept of, of, of priests or what they gave, that concept isn't completely unfamiliar to us. There are things that we normally lean into, and they still today for us, they serve as a kind of de facto priest, maybe a little habit that you do, or a routine, or, or things of that nature that you'll use in some sort of way to represent you before God. Some people will use, um, as their priest, church attendance. My ability to come to church all the time, that's kind of what I, I depend on that. I lean in that. That's going to represent me before God. Some people, it's monetary. I, I give to the church or I give to other good causes, and that's going to that's kind of represent me and kind of put in a good word for me uh, with God. Some use morality or their political leanings or their political choices. And, and more subtly, some of us will use a sense of production to be our priest. Have you ever thought, like, maybe there's a degree of separation between you and God, and you're like, quick, what do I do? Open Job. That'll get, that'll get me some credit. And you, are like, open the Bible, and you begin reading, and that's a de facto, hey, will this action, will that represent me to the Father? Or, or maybe you'll do something missional. You'll drive by Jesus, someone that you've never talked to in, like, a really long time. Come to church. Did that work? You know, something like that. We'll all do something, to try and represent us. A priest can be anything that you look to intentionally or unintentionally to help draw you near to God, uh, anything that makes you feel okay before the presence of God, and anything that you use to kind of stand in, put a good word, or represent you to God. That same uh, message for them applies for us. Nothing else can be a stand-in. Nothing else will work, not a habit, not a routine, not something that we do, and not some old covenant Levitical priest. There's nothing that you can put in to represent you except Jesus. The message becomes really clear, guys. Be really careful what you try and have represent you before God. Be really careful about what your heart does to try and elevate certain things to give you standing and representation before God. Nothing else will work. Not another man, not another habit, not another action. Nothing will work. Be careful. Only Christ can do this. What's the good news in all of that? Christ can do it, though. We get get a little frazzled because we believe that we should be able to have a a, a million options because we believe the, the lack of choice is somehow a prison The reality that we have an option is a blessing that we do not deserve. All of the other things are lesser things that cannot get you what your heart needs, and yet Jesus can. He stands there as the one going, I will be your high priest. I will represent you. I can do it perfectly. The text opens dealing with a specific superiority of Christ in verse 11. The author is establishing the need, right? We're always asking, okay, well, why? The reason why a new high priest was needed, he says is this, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, well, then there would have been no other need. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Why would priests from Melchizedek be needed instead of from Aaron? He's tapping into the idea of partial or or periodic. The word that they render in here for perfection uh, is a word that I understand why the the original audience puts here. If If the priest could have made you perfect probably not the right word. The original word is actually telos, meaning to, to something's end, uh, to its completion, to its fulfillment. The idea that the author is trying to weave in for you and me to see here is the idea, if the, little, if the Levitical priests could have taken you to the end, if they could have got the job done, If they could have got you to the destination, if they could have been the fulfillment, if they could have been the end and brought you to God, holy and perfect, then there would be no need for anything else. But that's the entire problem. They couldn't. They couldn't do the job that you and I need done more than anything else. And it's not that the Levitical priesthood was sinful or horrible or wrong. It was merely a provisional thing. It was periodic. It was inadequate to take away our sins. It was inadequate to take us to the to the telos, to the end. Therefore, it was temporary until the better high priest would come. This is to say it's not the old covenant priests were android and Jesus is the apple. They weren't a working alternative. You still following? We'll, we'll take that as a yes. They could never get the job done. They were never able to fix it. They were a stopgap. They were a partial fix. They were a periodic fix. They were not a final fix. They could never make anything perfect. This is why a new better priest always had to come. Verse 12 says, when the priesthood changed, this means the law had to change as well. So the old covenant priesthood was a part of the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those things kind of went together, and the priesthood and the law were intertwined in such a deep way that a change to the priesthood would actually mean a change to the law as well. You cannot change one radically without affecting the other radically as well. Why? Because they're radically intertwined. This new priesthood brings a new covenant, and that new covenant absolutely changes the law or how we relate to the law. Well, why does that matter? Why would that be important to us? Well, it, it matters because it'll probably come up. I don't know if you've ever heard the question, and I would imagine you probably have uh, heard the question or the statement about Christianity where somebody tries to kind of got gotcha you us about the Bible, and, and they'll, they'll look at you and go, so you really believe in the Bible, huh? And you're like, yeah, I, I do. they like, well, why you shave your face then? Because my wife wants me to? I, I mean, I don't know. Well, why are you wearing mixed material clothing? You're not supposed to do that. And they'll kind of like mic drop moment, like boom, gotcha. And, and what they're doing is they're asserting, hey, that was a law somewhere in the Bible, but you're not following that law anymore so that you must be a massive hypocrite. But those rules were under the, the old covenant part of the law. They were specific to the ceremonial laws and the, the, the judicial laws of the people of Israel. We do not follow those because Jesus has kind of changed the way we relate to the law by fulfilling the law himself. He has fulfilled that obligation, so we're no longer obligated to do that anymore. When everyone's thinking they've got you in a gotcha, they don't understand the beauty of what Jesus did already, what he has accomplished. Further, that's the reason we aren't sacrificing goats here once a month, right? You realize if there's no change of the law, that we've be having a whole lot of weird animal activity going on in here. But Jesus, the better high priest, came, and now he's changed the way that we relate to the Levitical law. The original audience would still have been caught up with this idea of family line and lineage, though. It was known that priests come from the line of Levi. That's the way it is. And kings come from the line of of Judah. That's the way it is as well. But this Jesus, a descendant of Judah, the king line, was being called a a priest. That was difficult for them to to kind of understand or get past. They were having trouble seeing how Jesus would would actually kind of break the mold that they see before. Jesus would operate as even more than, than a prophet and a priest. He would be the prophet, priest, and king. Not just one, but all three offices he fulfills perfectly. Remember the line of thinking, if the old priests couldn't get the, the telos, if they couldn't get us to the end, if they couldn't get us to the ending that we needed, no matter how hard they tried, there always was going to need to be something greater to come to accomplish what we needed. If not, we're always operating in this mode of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over and hoping for a, a different result. We needed not just a, 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 a different result, Form of the old covenant priest, we needed a whole new priesthood from Jesus. There's this interesting line of reasoning found in verse 15 and 16. It's as if the author is saying, You keep getting stuck up on the credentials, on the family line, on the family tree. That's the aspect that you're kind of needing to appease your mind, but the object or the aspect of an indestructible life, you're not even taking that into consideration. You want to know that the person comes from the right line of people. And you're completely ignoring that Jesus died, was resurrected, and will never die again. How can you be so focused on this while you miss this? He is the better priest. The author in the text points to Psalm 110, verse 4, when he writes verse 17. That psalm goes like this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When many Old Covenant Jews would be wondering, um, why aren't we holding to Scripture here? Like, why are we going another direction? Why are we abandoning the Word of God to kind of follow this Jesus? The author says that the Word of God's been pointing to Him all along. We're not abandoning the Word, you're missing the times that the Word always pointed to Him in the first place. Further, you're worried about the Old Testament law being obeyed, but you're not recognizing that the law is weak and useless in the fact that it can't make anything perfect. There's that word again, perfect. The, the law cannot take us to the, to the telos. It cannot get us to the end. It cannot complete things. It cannot fulfill what we need fulfilled. So we need a better hope through the one who would, establish, who would accomplish the law, through the better hope who is Jesus. And through this better hope, who accomplishes what the Old Testament priests never could and what the Old Testament laws never could through this better one, we're actually able to draw near to God the Father. There is a path for a sinful, broken in humanity to be made new in this high priest and to actually come near to God. This is a huge statement. Through the priests, or through this new priest is how we can draw near. The old covenant priests, they could not offer anything like this but Jesus can. Dig into the logic here. The law just condemned. All it did was point out our weakness. The law showed us over and over that we needed saving, that there's a gap between us and God. It reminded us that we need a rescue, that we cannot hold the moral line, that we cannot obey the Father on our own. The law could never fix anything. It's still helpful, though, because it shows us that we needed fixed. This new hope hasn't come to condemn you and show you your faults in the way that the law does, though. This new hope in Jesus hasn't come to drive you away from God when you see your sinfulness. This new hope is actually the source that draws you into God, even in light of who you are. It doesn't push you away. It is what pulls you in. This would have been breathtaking to the original audience. You, sinner, can draw near to God. You can. It doesn't matter your family line what you have in your past, you can draw near. You can come close. I can? Yeah, you can. You, sinner, can be clean and have access to the throne room of God, the presence of the Almighty God that you were wired for. It's not closed off to you anymore. The presence of the Almighty, you don't have to run and hide and worry if you're going to get cast down in your shame and in your sin. You can run towards Him without worry of being destroyed. This is really good news. There is a way for you, no matter how lost you may have been or think that you are. Again, this is not a small matter. Many flee Christianity and the Christian religion because it serves as a mirror to them. and They don't understand what the better high priest offers. Christianity shows us who we truly are. The law is still valuable. We need to know that we are transgressors in need of rescuing. So the Christian faith serves much like this mirror. It shows you your faults and your weaknesses and your idols and your inner God complex and all of these things. It shows them to you. And when that mirror shows you who you are and you simultaneously see how big and how holy and righteous God is, the common emotion there is fear and shame. And you want to hide and you want to run. You think there's no way for me to get close to this. I am not like that. So what do many people do when they get the mirror? They say, it's too uncomfortable. And they walk or run away because they feel condemned. There's no way for me to draw near to that. Yeah, they'll hide it behind other things, but it's, I can't look at who I am. I cannot stand under the weight of this condemnation. They don't see that the new high priest invites them to draw near. He invites them to come to the Lord, even in their weakness. This is not a flow into a hyper-grace theology. It's not that Jesus allows sinners to go unchecked in their sin forever. That is heresy, and grace doesn't mean you can do whatever you want for all of your life. The reality of Jesus is that you can come imperfect, and the perfect will perfect you over time. This is the beauty. This new high priest can deal with your sin. You don't have to run in shame. No matter how big and how dark And how dirty your past is or your present is. Jesus can deal with that too. Even my college days. Yeah, he can deal with those. Even the things that people don't know about. The addictions. Yeah. The rage. Yeah. See, so much of us inside thinks, how can I be clean before God? How can I approach God? How do I draw near? Man, I've fallen short so many times. So many times. And I've even thought like a New Year's resolution, like this time I won't. Then I do it again. How can I draw near? How could he love a sinner like me? How could a sinner like me come close? How is it? And the author of Hebrews is, is telling us it's because of Jesus. That's how. The better high priest, he isn't partial. He doesn't cover part of your sin. He covers all of it. And he isn't periodic. You don't have to worry that he's going to kind of wear off and then all of a sudden you're not going to have representation before God anymore. Verse 20 through 22 seems like a, a dealing with a defeater question uh, that, that would probably pop up with those people. Some may hear all of that and be like, okay, he's the high priest and he's really that good. Um, maybe he's that great, but what if God changes his mind again, though? What if he switches the priest again, again, and I put all that hope into Jesus, and I throw the full weight, just like you're saying, I, I, I believe in him as my anchor, and I, okay, I'm, I'm in all the way. What if I do that, and I feel safe, and I feel secure, and then he changes it again? To which the author does what he did powerfully in chapter 6. He takes that question, and he throws that answer upon the character of God. He says, well, this is how you know. God promised you. He made you an oath a covenant even, that he would not change his line about the, his mind about the line of Melchizedek. He would be forever the high priest, again, referencing Psalm 110 for us. The point is God never promised that the old covenant priest would last forever. In fact, he pointed all along that a greater one would come, and we just missed it. But God did promise and make an oath about this new line that Jesus was from, It would last forever. He would not change his mind. He would not switch his plan. And because of that, you can trust in Jesus because God gave his word and God cannot lie. His word is an anchor for our souls, as chapter six told us. Everything else will fail. Everything else will will fold. Everything else will not hold for you, but God's word never fails. So what's the inference for this? Because if this is, or, or what's the, the, the demand of this? If this is true and it'll hold forever and you don't have to worry about being pulled out from underneath of you, the, the, the only thing he can be saying is so stop holding back, stop hedging your bets and draw near. Stop chasing what he can give you in other things for any number of reasons that you're doing it and run towards and draw near to God through Jesus. Verse 23 through 25, one more time. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near Man, in, in the realm of this year, and prayer, in the hopes that we have right now, can you just hear that line? He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The arguments have been made over and over about Jesus being the better high priest, but at the core of those arguments, still stands the idea of partial and periodic. Why is Jesus the better high priest? Because he is neither partial nor periodic. Other priests were periodic. You always needed to find another one. You always had to kind of place your hope in a new one if one died. Your greatest need had to hang on a man who could change over time. Can you grasp how much anxiety that would kind of cause you if you had to hang your hopes on just a, like a man-man, not God-man, Jesus? Other priests were also partial. They could never get you to the telos. They could never take you to the end. They could never fulfill or complete or end what you needed. They were not perfect. They could not make you perfect or eternally clean. They were band-aids at best when you needed big-time surgery. They could never save you or bring in even the worst of sinners. But Jesus can save to the uttermost. This word uttermost, like the author is pouring it on in the original language. This word for uttermost in the original language is panteles, again from telos. He can save you completely. He can be the end. He's the one that can complete the job. In him, it's like he said, it is finished and nothing else can declare that over you. In a world of partial, he stands as the only thing that is complete. He stands as the only way that fully makes a way back to God. In him, there isn't any more work to be done. It is finished. There isn't another sacrifice that needs to happen. There isn't a new animal that we need to bring and shed its blood. He has Finished it. He takes you to the telos. He can save to the uttermost, even the darkest and the dirtiest past. He can save all of them. In this Christ, we are completely complete, is what the author is trying to show you and me. We are perfect before God because of the work of Jesus. And how do we know that he won't be periodic, that his uh, grace and his mercy won't fade? How do we know that he won't, or that we won't kind of out-sin our grace? Because I don't know if you're ever like me, you're like, yes, it'll hold forever, but but I do some dumb stuff, so maybe I need two portions. Do I get two portions? You're like, "It, it doesn't matter how many portions, he'll save you from all of the sins. It doesn't matter how much grace you think you need, he'll still cover it. He won't require more out of your plight. You won't like outsin His grace. He stands as the one who made the perfect sacrifice, and now is the perfect high priest. And then the text says He also stands next to the Father on the right hand, always making intercession. What if you and I believe that there isn't a time where Jesus is not interceding for you? He never stops. No sleep break. Last night, yeah. Last week, yeah. Wrap your mind around Right now, Jesus is interceding for you. While some things may last a while in life, some things may endure a little bit. The text says there is no interruption in Christ's intercession on your behalf. Nothing will stop him and nothing can stop him from interceding for you. Your mistakes won't make him quit and give up. Your seasons and your moments of, 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 of maybe affections that are all over the place won't make him throw his fist down and say, forget them, I'm done, I'm so tired of it. He'll never stop. Think about that, there is no limit. No stopping point, no breaking point. You and I can think of ourselves as patient people sometimes. But we've all had people who broke the limit of our patience and we go, I'm done with you. I can't do this anymore. Nothing will take Christ to that breaking point with those that are his. He will appeal for you forever and ever and ever. Nothing will stop him from coming and opening the path for you to draw near to the Father and him appealing to the Father on your behalf. We may think, well, what about emergencies, right? Surely on 9/11, or when the whole word of a uh, pandemic broke out, or on election day, or you know, just a- any day that just crazy and chaotic. Surely on those days, Jesus had to kind of respectfully, you know, like, just kind of back away because there's something really important going on. Surely on those days, he just kind of pulled back and had to go handle greater things and greater needs and. Surely he paused, and and I'd understand it. The text says, no, 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 nothing will stop him. He will always intercede for you. He is always interceding for you. He lives to, and he loves to, make intercession for you, and he will never stop. Christ will never stop making a way for you to draw near to God. And he'll never stop making it possible so that you can. So it is that the believer there, or, so it is that, that for a believer, what, what's happening is the author of, of Hebrews is, is telling Benjamin Franklin, hey, you're not quite right. For, for a believer, it's death, taxes, and intercession. You can take it to the bank. You can count on it. You can rest in it. Christ's intercession for you will not diminish, and it will not end. Everything else fades, and not him. You can draw near to God like you were created to do as a child of God. So run towards him and find what your souls need. If we try and make sense out of the book of Genesis again, and in the Bible you have these themes. You have creation, and you have the fall, and you have redemption and reconciliation. In the creation account, we begin to understand what we were made for. And they walked in the cool of the day with the Father. You were made to connect with, to draw near, to be near and walk with God. You're wired for it. It's in you, no matter how special or different or or odd or whatever you think you are. We all love to believe though, like I'm just not the same as everyone. God wired you this way that you were meant to walk with him. And sin shattered that. And the beauty in this text is Jesus recreates a path for you to get what you ultimately were created to go for. He has made a way for you to get what your soul yearns for, even if you don't know it. You are a worshiper. You are one who wants to connect to your Abba. Your heart and your soul needs it, even if you don't know it. And the author's going, Jesus is always making intercession so you can have that path to get back to him. We run to lesser things all the time and they just won't do. Jesus, the perfect high priest will though. As we close and wind down, I just ask you to ponder just the simple question, what does it look like for you to draw near to God in this current moment of life that you're in? What does it look like? What would it look like for you to draw near to him now? here before you leave. For some of you, it may mean, and when I say some, probably a lot of us. For some, we may need to start with repentance. To help you draw near your Father. Man, I've run. I've run to other things for the telos, to, to be the end, to fill the depths of my heart over and over and over. And I'm just confessing to you and I don't even need to confess to have the open path, but I need to confess to have power over. I've run to your idols. Help me. Help me to turn from those things and turn towards you. Confession should not be a dirty word. For some, it may be asking the Holy Spirit to help you draw near. What I found about my own heart and and talking to to others as as well, I I believe that it's a common thing. We get into paths where we're so distracted that we can draw near, and we haven't in so long in a deep way where our affections are muted and our emotions are twisted. And it just becomes this reality You're like, I think I want to, but, like, I don't know how. I'm not sure how to draw near. Sounds good. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I think that's what the Holy Spirit, the paraclete is for. The helper. Spirit, help me. I mean, my emotions, my heart, they're, they're twisted up. Help me draw near. I don't even know how. Help me. Help me see the Father. Help me see that I can draw near to him. Help me see that what I need is in Christ, in Christ alone. Will you stir my emotions for you again? Help me. Right, like the text says, awake, oh sleeper, help me. In a season of Lent, maybe you're right now, you just are understanding that drawing near has been difficult because you have way just too much, too much noise around you. This is the one that gets me a lot. Too much going on, too many irons in the fire to draw near, too many YouTube videos in the playlist, too many things going on, too many hobbies going on, too many pursuits going on, too, just too much stuff. And the play for you of drawing near is just to start with the Holy Spirit by saying, will you help me slow down? I can't. It's what I've noticed with my children a couple times. And if I'm actually super honest, I've, I've noticed it about me, there are certain times where things happen you're like, I can't stop. So you pray to the Spirit, will you help me? Madam, I, I can't slow down. Will you help me slow down and see that you have what I need? Will you help me slow down and see that you're offering me what my heart needs? Will you help me? For others who still feel like they can't approach God because you don't have access. All I can do is give you the words of Jesus, all who are weary, heavy laden. Here's the great part about the text. Jesus didn't say all who are perfect come. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden come and I'll give you Rest. This come to me in, involves the same act of drawing near this, leaning into God. I'm casting away the old things. You have what I need. Teach me how. Our hope today is that every person here, regardless of their situation, will have a clear path. I'm just maybe looking at what the next part of drawing near to God would look like. Repentance. Confession. Ask for the help of the Spirit ask for more belief, ask to see God more clearly, ask to see the things that are kind of sucking your time away to where you're too distracted. I think everyone probably has a path. The hope is that we would understand Jesus made it possible and so we'd lean into it. Just corporately, we would say, man, you guys can come back up. Got us put on our hearts for a long time, This stirring that his presence isn't as far away as we thought. So my hope is that you would really just gain a taste for it. God, I, I want to know you more. I want to draw near to you more. I want to feel your presence more. I want to lean into you more. The hope is that we would do that together. That's, that's why we're preaching this way. That's why we're leaving time for prayer in our, our liturgy and our singing at the end. It's why we're coming together for two hours for the only purpose of, uh, of, of singing and, and prayer on the 25th of, uh, of, of March. I think I got that date right. Because we're going, God, we just want to just keep leaning in and say, God, come draw near to us. The hope is that you would do that. You see that there's a path and there's a way. And this is what the Christian life is finding what you ultimately need in Jesus and running towards Him and leaning into Him. We'll take communion as well today. This is where we just remind ourselves none of that would be possible without Jesus. You cannot come near without Him, there is no open path without him. There is no intercession without him, but we have him. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way after he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we spend some time processing this text and singing, we'll give you a gap after the first song to just lean into drawing near to the Lord. Like we're serious about that. We don't want that to be just a fad that goes away. As you process those things and ask the Lord to help you draw near and then we sing later, you can come to the table and understanding the body and the blood of Jesus is there for you. There is a provision, there's a way. It's the best news that any of us could ever have. I pray that you would find peace at the table and that you would find encouragement at the table and that your affections would be stirred in worship today.